We are continuing in our sermon series called Focal Point. This is a series on all of Scripture. We're going from Genesis to Revelation, one verse at a time. No. <laughs> it might have felt that way over the past couple of weeks, but we're going to pick up the pace. Uh, we're going to, if you want to open up to, we're going to start in Genesis 12 today. And by the end of this sermon, we will get all the way through the end of Genesis. We're going to be talking about difficult journeys today. The difficult journey of faith. We're going to be looking at the patriarchs in Genesis. And you know, as I was thinking about it, if you've ever been on a a tough journey, a tough trip, maybe a vacation that didn't quite go well, baggage that was lost, uh, cars that were lost, keys that were lost, it makes for great stories, doesn't it? You tell someone, you get back, maybe a couple years later, you laugh about it, it's hilarious, it's great. I remember a trip when uh, Becky and I went to see her sister Rita, who was living and working in El Salvador, and we went and spent some time there. And Rita was a teacher at a Christian school down there, and we were going with her to school to help out, kind of see what she does, work with the kids a little bit. And we get up in the morning and we go out, And her car is parked on the road, and we see right away she has a flat tire. Okay, well, I know how to change a tire. We went to open the trunk and get the spare out. And at this point, you would think, oh, the spare's also flat. That's the funny story. No, the spare was fine. But in opening the trunk, we happened to look at the other side of the car, also with a flat tire. (laughs) Now, whoever invented the concept of a spare tire, this is a great idea unless you have two flat tires in which case you are out of luck. So we jacked it up. I think we might've put the spare on one side. We jacked up the other side, took the tire off, and we had to walk these two tires to a store that could fix them about three quarters of a mile away in El Salvador, where it's hot. (laughs) We did this, we got them fixed, took them back. I don't remember if we got a ride back. I don't remember the journey back. I do know the journey there was downhill to the tire place. I don't know how we got back. But, you know, it makes for a funny story. There was another time when I was a youth pastor, and and I learned a lot in my early days as a youth minister. I learned I needed to become much more organized, much more diligent. So we were planning an outing, a camping trip, and I was determined. I made a spreadsheet of everything we needed. I was determined to have everything and have it planned perfectly. And I was so proud of myself. It was so organized and went so great until it came time to cook the food. Remembered the food, had everything we needed for the food, had the charcoal and the lighter for the grill at the beach that we were at. I forgot the grill utensils. So on my perfectly planned and prepared trip, we used sticks over a grill to flip hamburgers and hot dogs. It was hilarious. And we joked about it for years to come. I'm sure we all have stories of difficult journeys. And maybe they're funny. Maybe not so funny. Maybe some have happy endings. Maybe some not so much. Maybe you're in a difficult journey right now. And I think it's a lot easier to hear a difficult story in hindsight. To look back, because you know where things have gone. You know how it's turned out. But it's hard to remember in the middle of the difficulty that God has a plan and a purpose 
and he is at work. And you know, in many ways, this sums up the totality of this sermon series, Focal Point. And I called it Focal Point because I believe that all of Scripture focuses on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament looks ahead to Jesus Christ. Everything in the New Testament, all of the church age and still us today, looks back to Jesus Christ. He is the focal point. We've walked through creation, walked through our purpose as created beings made in God's image. We looked at the fall of humanity. We walked forward through the Tower of Babel. And then last week, we looked at the call of Abraham. And this covenant, this promise that God made where he establishes a relationship with Abraham. And so we're picking it up there. And we're going to look at four key men that really are the focal point of the rest of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Genesis is a sweeping book of history, and yet it's very interesting that it keys in on these four men and their families and what happens to them, and in particular, their difficult journey of faith. And I hope that by looking at this, we can get some perspective on the difficult journeys that we face in our life as well. And the first thing I want to look at is God's goodness on difficult journeys. As I said earlier, maybe you're here this morning and you're in the middle of the hardship, the middle of the difficult time. Maybe you're here and things are great. Maybe it's just around the corner. Maybe you're here and you're looking back on a time. But as we look at these four men and their families and how God worked through them, we see very clearly that God is good even and especially in the difficulty of our journey. Now, one hard thing about a sermon series like this is that normally I would want to read the passage that I'm preaching on. We're preach, I'm preaching on Genesis 12 through 50. Obviously, we're not going to read that whole thing today. But I also don't want to assume that you know it. And so I want to give an overview of some of the key things in case you're not as familiar with it. But I really challenge you and encourage you, read Genesis 12 to 50. Read about these men. Read about what they went through and how God worked in their lives. So let me introduce you to these five or these four men and their difficult journey. The first is Abraham. We've talked last week. He was originally called Abram. God changed his name. I'm going to call him Abraham. Just keeps things simple. In Genesis 12 to 15, God reaches out to this man, Abraham. And we looked at that last week. We have nothing in scripture that tells us that Abraham even knew who God was or worshiped God at all. Abraham wasn't called a righteous man. We don't really know anything about him other than God chose to reach out to Abraham. And God says to him, I will bless you. I will be with you. I will have a relationship with you. He promises that he will bring a great nation from Abraham, which means Abraham's got to have some kids that are going to turn into this great nation. There's just a minor problem with that. He and his wife cannot have children. And he's already at this time about 75 years old. God promises to give him land and God promises through Abraham to bless all the people of the whole earth. I'm sure Abraham's hearing this going, what, uh, little me? Like, how? How is that going to happen? But sure enough, Abraham trusts God and his journey begins. 
He leaves his home country. He leaves behind much of his family and he sets off in the direction that God tells him. I love this part of Abraham's journey. It's like God says, Abraham, walk that way. I'll tell you when to stop. And Abraham does it. He starts going. And when he gets to the promised land, Abraham says, or God says to him, this is it. This all happens when he's about 20 or 75 years old. And what's interesting is that for about the next 25 years, Abraham does not see the fulfillment of God's promises. 25 years. For the next 25 years of his life, he owns no property in the promised land. He's there, but it's not his in any sense of the word. doesn't belong to him. For 25 years, the son that is the promised one to come to him is not born. Abraham has other children in other ways, but not the promised child. And this journey is so difficult. He gets to this promised land, and right away you would think, this is great. This is what God's given me, this great promise. Isn't God great? Do you know what happens right away? Famine. Could you imagine Abraham? He gets there finally. It's like, really, God, a famine? And right away, Abraham and his family have to leave to Egypt. The whole time that Abraham walks with God, he is struggling along the journey of faith. For 25 years, he waits for this child to be born. In that time, his wife is abducted twice. He moves from place to place and is often not welcomed anywhere he settles. And the whole time, he's struggling to trust God's promise. That's a difficult journey. Years of difficult journey. He does have a son by Sarah. Isaac, the son of the promise, comes along. This is great. Everything is going to be better now. Everything is going to be well for Isaac, right? He's born to Abraham when Abraham is 100 years old. Marries the woman of his dreams, woman named Rebecca. And Genesis chapter 25, verse 21 tells us that like his father and his mother before him, he and Rebecca are struggling to have children. Which again is interesting. Because the promise that God gave to Abraham that then gets passed to Isaac requires that they keep having kids. And yet why is it generation after generation are struggling to have children? Genesis chapter 26 tells us that Isaac also faces famine in the promised land. We're told then that he goes from place to place. He he tries to settle down and dig a well. Now, never dug a well. Okay, but I know a little bit about biblical culture. They had no, no caterpillar tractors or anything. They had no big mammoth drills. When it said they dug a well, it means shovels of some sort and backbreaking work to dig a huge hole in the ground to find some water. And I assume it would take days to dig these wells in the hot sun. They dug a well and they were like, great, this is it. We're going to be here. And then somebody comes along, oh, no, no, you're on my property. That's my water. They go and dig another well. No, 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 you're on my property. That's my water. Well after well after well. And I just wonder along the way if Isaac wondered, God, you promised. Where is it? Why is it so difficult? Isaac has a son, Jacob, 
one of two twins, the younger of the two twins of Jacob and Esau. Jacob's story is a bit different because he also faces a lot of hardships, but his hardships tend to be his own dumb fault. Jacob is a liar and a schemer. He lives his life trying to get what he wants when he wants it in the way that he wants to get it. He tricks his father into giving him the main inheritance of the family instead of giving it to Esau. He's sent away under the auspices of finding a bride, but it was more his mom trying to make sure that Esau doesn't kill Jacob. So she sends him away. And his difficult journey along the way, he meets with God. And God says this to him in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 to 15. It says, there above it, this this Jacob's ladder, as it were, there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you. And wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is very familiar. It should be familiar to us. It's almost word for word what God had said to Abraham. And God repeats it now to Jacob. And you would think, have you ever thought, you know, God, if I could just hear your voice, if I could just hear you speak to me, then I would trust you. My doubts would be gone. I'd be a changed person. And you would think, Jacob has this profound experience with the Lord where this promise is given to him. Like he should be set for life. He should be a man of incredible faith, just trusting in God no matter what. No, he's still Jacob. He's still a schemer and a liar along the way. Jacob also finds the woman of his dreams, a girl named Rachel. But he has to work for seven years to earn the right to marry her. And on his wedding night, in a profound twist of irony, Jacob's father-in-law schemes and lies against Jacob. And he exchanges one sister for another. And Jacob ends up marrying the older sister, Leah. He talks to the father-in-law. He says, wait a minute, this was not the deal. There's a lot of cultural issues here that we don't have time to go into. But he knows, like, I'm married to her. I can't get out of this. But he wants to marry Rachel. And so the dad says, sure, you just have to work another seven years. And so for 14 years, he works. And now he has these two wives. They begin having children. And interestingly enough, Rachel cannot have children. Jacob knows that it's through Rachel that this promise will be carried on, and yet she is struggling to get pregnant. Eventually, over time and through a whole mess we won't go into, Jacob ends up with 12 sons. You know them as the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob is heading home to go back to his family, to go back to where his brother Esau lives, his brother that he cheated out of his inheritance. And Jacob is worried. And on the way back home, he struggles and schemes to think, how am I going to get through this? 
And he comes up with this great plan. I will organize my household from the least to the greatest. And I will send the least on ahead. So that if Esau kills them, the rest of us can get away. What a guy. Or he thinks if Esau chooses to claim these as his own, maybe the rest of us will be forgiven. What a great guy. But as the day gets closer when he's going to meet his brother Esau, he gets more and more nervous. And the night before, God appears to him. And in an interesting passage, God wrestles with Jacob. And Jacob is winning. And I think this is this picture of Jacob's life. He thought, I've got this. I just need to work harder, try harder. I can work this out using my own skills and my own strength. And it seems like it's working. And then God says, Jacob, we're not on an even playing field at all. And he does this by simply touching Jacob's hip. And it wrenches out a socket. See, Jacob needed to be reminded God had a better way. God's strength was greater than anything Jacob could accomplish. Jacob is reunited with Esau. Things go moderately well. The next person that we are drawn to is Joseph. In Genesis chapter 37 to 50, he is one of Jacob's 12 children. He's the oldest son of Jacob's wife, Rachel. And so we have this ongoing story of God's covenant, the promise being passed down and carrying on to generation to generation. Surely things will go better now. Surely Joseph will have it easier. No, his 11 brothers, for the most part, hate him, at least most of them. He has these dreams that from the Lord and he communicates them to his family like, isn't this great? But the dreams are, hey, you're all going to bow down and serve me. And they don't think that's so great. His brothers decide to kill him. At the last minute, they have a striking change of heart. And instead of killing him, they just sell him into slavery. What great brothers. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. He becomes a household servant, does well. He gets promoted. Isn't this great? And the wife of the household takes a liking to Joseph, starts hitting on him. He refuses. She accuses him of trying to molest her. And he ends up thrown in prison. Joseph ends up in prison for roughly, possibly around 10 years. For doing nothing. For following the Lord, for trusting him, for trying to be faithful. Eventually, someone comes along and Joseph's able to help this person. That person mentions Joseph to the king, to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh brings in Joseph and is impressed by him. And Joseph gets promoted to the second in command of all of Egypt. And one day, his brothers come before him because there's a famine back home. And they come for food. And Joseph has a choice. Is he going to trust? Or is he going to take revenge? How is he going to treat his brothers? We read these stories. And we read them hopefully in the context of Scripture. We know, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. We know where it's leading. We know how God uses this with all the ups and downs throughout the history of the Old Testament. 
And sometimes we hear these stories and maybe the kids are talking about it in Sunday school and children's church. These heroes of the faith. But man, they faced some difficult journeys. And I think we need to stop and put ourselves in their place in the moment. Think about what they must have felt along the journey. Think about these women. Think about the times they hear their husbands say, oh, you are going to bear the promised one. You are going to bear the promised child. And they're thinking, I can't even have children. Think about the struggle and the guilt that they must have gone through. Think about the struggle to say, I'm going to trust the Lord. and I'm going to go here. And then time after time, there's famine in the land and they have to go somewhere else. Think about the promise of the promised land and a place where this nation's going to grow, but they don't own any of it. And they have to move from place to place. Think about the death that they faced, the hardship, the difficulty. As we read through Genesis, I think it's easy to miss the human element. These people were on a difficult journey. And like us, they were struggling along the way. I wonder if Abraham ever wondered, should I have just stayed home? This has not gone the way I thought it should go. I wonder if Isaac was frustrated knowing that God had promised him so much and he's dug these wells and he gets kicked out time after time. I wonder if Jacob was frustrated. He thought he had it all under control and then he realized he had very little under control at all. And I imagine Joseph sitting in a prison cell for years and years for something he didn't even do. All the while trying to remain faithful and trusting in the Lord. And we can look at these stories and say, well, I guess the application is it's better not to trust God. But that's not true either, is it? Because there's hardship either way. This is a sinful, messed up world filled with sinful, messed up people. We are sinful, messed up people. And there is a messiness and a difficulty to the journey every step of the way. But the other thing we see through their difficult journeys is that God is always faithful. He continues to lead them step by step along the way. Another theme that I want to explore in these patriarchs is the difference between our ways and God's way. And the choice that we always have, whether we're going to trust our ways or trust God's ways. Sometimes we struggle to trust God. We struggle to trust his promises from scripture. And so we're scrambling. We're trying to do things on our own. Sometimes we're not aware of the promises from scripture. We're just living our life and we're struggling. Sometimes we do know the promises. And we think, thank God, this is great that this is your will for my life or for my church or for the country or whatever it is. This is great. Now I'm going to make it happen. And we take God's promises and we try to accomplish them in our ways. This happens again and again as we look at these patriarchs. The first I want to look at again is Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, as I said earlier, could not have children. But God had promised Abraham that Sarah would have a son. Well, originally that Abraham would have a son. And so Abraham comes up with this way to have a child. Actually, it was Sarah's idea. 
takes her servant Hagar, gives her to Abraham. This was a culturally accepted way of kind of having an adopted child at that time. It would be considered in some way Abraham and Sarah's child. And so Abraham has a child through Hagar. We know him as Ishmael. And yet God comes along and says, no, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And so here's Abraham trying to figure out God's plans in his own way. Eventually, Isaac is born. What a joy. These people far past childbearing years, and they get a child, Isaac. And then one day, God comes to Abraham with a very difficult command. Look at Genesis chapter 22. I'll put it up here. Genesis 22, verse 2. Then God said, this is to Abraham, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. God has promised that all of his promises to Abraham will be carried out and carried on through Isaac, which is really hard to do if Isaac is dead. And so here's Abraham. And throughout his life, he has tried to trust in God's promise, but often tried to carry out that trust in his own way. And he is faced with a situation where that won't work. God puts him in a spot where he has to choose to trust God, period. We find out from other scriptures that Abraham trusted maybe he could raise Isaac from the dead. Maybe that's what God was going to do. He didn't know how this was going to turn out, but he knew he had this promise from God and he knew he had this command from God and it was God's job to figure out how this would work. It was Abraham's job to trust God. So he does. He prepares the sacrifice. He puts Isaac on the altar, raises the knife, and God says, stop. It was never God's plan to actually have Abraham kill his son. But I think this taught Abraham something, and I think it teaches us something. We have to ask ourselves, will I trust in God's plans to be worked out God's way? Or do I think I should take God's plans and work them out on my own? God's plans will always be worked out God's way. Another thing that we can look at is Jacob and Esau. Esau spends his whole life scheming and lying, tricking his father into giving him the inheritance, tricking his father-in-law over many, many years, even though his father-in-law tricked him too. He has this plan to kind of make himself rich using his father-in-law's flocks. He thinks he's got it all together. But then he gets to meet Esau, and he struggles. And all of his plans, when when God shows up, all of his plans come to nothing. He cannot win in his own strength because God is greater. And in that moment, God teaches him something and teaches us something. We must trust God's plans to work out God's ways. A key part And a key theme as we read these stories of the patriarchs, it's important to 
stop and remind ourselves. The question in reading these Bible stories is not, how can I be more like Abraham? How can I be more like Isaac? You're already like Abraham and Isaac. I'm already like them. We are messed up people making all sorts of mistakes. Done. We got it. We're struggling in our faith. Check. Got that. The question when we read these is, how was God faithful to them? What can I learn from them about how I should trust the Lord? The goal is not to be more like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. The goal is to trust in the God that was faithful along the path of their difficult journey. The final thing that I want to point out as we look at these patriarchs is that God had a purpose for their journey. They're living moment by moment wondering how one step is going to lead to the next. And each step sometimes was difficult, sometimes a little bit easier. But we get to see the big picture. Man, sometimes I wish I could step back from my own life and, and see the end of the story. And know how it all works out. But I get to read these stories. And hear about Abraham and how God used him to create the nation of Israel and how God used them as well. When we get to the end of the book of Genesis, it's very interesting because Joseph is confronted with his brothers. And and they've been there for a while. They know who he is now. Their father has just passed away and they come to Joseph because they're afraid that Joseph is now going to take out his punishment on them. And they come to, the, to Joseph to try to appease him. And Joseph makes a profound statement in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 to 20. He says this, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's incredible. To look at years of hardship and to be able to have the perspective. He doesn't say, hey, it's fine what you did. It's all good. It was all wonderful. No, they intended it for evil. It was wrong. But God has been at work, working out his plan, and has taken that mess and those poor decisions, and he is using them for his purpose. Friends, the journey is difficult. There's no denying that. Being a Christian is hard. It is hard to hold on to faith. And if if you hear a preacher, a pastor, read an author, and all they're telling you is about how God just wants everything to be happy and wonderful in your life, man, read Genesis and then keep reading. Oh, don't get me wrong. God has a plan and a purpose. And it is for your ultimate good. It is for the ultimate good of all creation. But there is a difficult journey between now and then. God doesn't just step in and make everything wonderful. He leads us by the hand through the difficulties, teaching us who he is and calling on us to trust him every step of the way. Joseph understands something that Paul picks up on in Romans 8.28. He says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
And people love to rip that out of context and say, see, God just wants to bless you and make everything great. Yes, he does want to bless you. But often the path of God's blessing is through the journey of a difficult faith. Because the greatest blessing that God has for us is a closer relationship with him. In our sinful, stubborn minds, sometimes the only way to draw closer to him is being led by the hand through the difficult moments as we learn to trust him. We see so many themes that come up through this. These men, these families, they're looking forward to a promised land, this place that they will be that God promises them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, for four generations, approximately 300 years, they're told about the promised land where they will be planted and grow. And yet, at the end of Genesis, number one, they don't own anything in the promised land except the corner of a field with a cave in it where somebody buried their wife. That's it. And number two, they're not there. At the end of Genesis... The whole nation, the whole promised people of Israel are in Egypt. But the promise is still there. And we get to look at the stories, the accounts of these men and these women and these children and the hardships. And while they might be wondering every step of the way, is this the end of the story? We know it's not. We get the big picture. And I pray that in our own lives we could remind ourselves I'm here and I'm wondering if this is the end of the story. But I too and you too have a promised land. Jesus Christ has promised to come back and take us to be with him forever and ever. And we are on the journey from here to there. And just like the people of old, we struggle along the way. And I love that we have these stories because it tells me God understands He's been there before. He's dealt with people just like us before and he has remained faithful to them and he will remain faithful to us. Keep trusting God's plans, God's ways. Another interesting theme that comes up is this theme of going to Egypt. Sometimes God takes us into difficult places to accomplish his purposes in us. Abraham goes to Egypt during famine. At the end of Genesis, all the Israelites are in Egypt. And of course, we know the rest of the story. God rescues them. That's the the book of Exodus that we're going to look at in the future. Later on in the Old Testament, God's people end up in exile, away. And this idea of being in Egypt or being in exile is always this, this sense of struggle of, I'm not where I should be. And yet God promises over and over again, He is bringing them back. And throughout all of it is this lingering question, how? How will these promises ultimately be fulfilled? These families, these men trusted the promise that a child would be born, often to a woman that seemed like she couldn't have a child. They promised or they believed in a promise that they would be saved, they would be brought to this home that they could belong forever. And one day, A girl who shouldn't have been able to have a child is with child, a virgin. And she gives birth to a promised child, and they name him Jesus, the name which means he saves. 
And he is also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Throughout scripture, we see people trying to deal with God's plans and their own sin and their own way, and they're trying to work it all out. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's God's plan accomplished God's way. And we have to ask ourselves, am I going to keep trying to fix myself? Am I going to keep trying to clean myself up and and make myself good enough for God? Or am I going to accept that his plan for me was to send his son Jesus Christ to die in my place? We cannot deal with our own sin. Our efforts will always fall short. But God's plan was accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. All of these difficult journeys that we read in Genesis and all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they all point ahead to Jesus Christ. Difficult journeys make for good stories. Sometimes they're funny later. Man, in the moment, in the step-by-step path along the way, they are hard. And reading these stories of others' difficult journeys, I hope will help us to have a better perspective on ours. God is good along the way. God will work out his plans according to his purposes in his own power. We need to trust in him. And finally, all of it points ahead to Jesus Christ. And we can look to the cross and the resurrection and see God's plan and his purpose for our life. I would strongly encourage you this week, read Genesis 12 through 50. Read about these men and their families. And as you do, think to yourself, what would it have been like? What would I have felt in that moment? And look at how God was faithful to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, maybe there's somebody here in the middle of a difficult moment. God, I love the song that we sang earlier, Blessed Be Your Name. It's a hard song, and it's easy to miss the depth of it. But every verse starts with these great times and a choice to praise you, to worship you, to be thankful to you. And in the middle of every verse, it turns to difficult times. And the same choice to be thankful to you and to look to you and to trust in you. God, we're all on this journey of faith. Some people here maybe are trying to do it on their own, trying to fix themselves, trying to fix the world around them. I pray that you would turn their gaze to you, that they would be challenged by these these accounts of these men and their struggles and their families and their struggles. Father, may we learn the lessons to trust in you, to trust your plan to be worked out in your way and to just keep on following. And God, in those times that that it seems like everything is great, use those times to continue to teach us about you, that we could go deeper in your word, we could study these accounts because difficulty will come. And I pray that you would give us that foundation of faith in your word and in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be ready to meet those things. And Father, if there's anyone here on a difficult journey of their own and they've never trusted in you, 
I pray, Father, today would be the day that they would say yes to your son, Jesus Christ. That they would understand that you do have a plan and a purpose for their life. And it starts with saving them from their sins through your son, Jesus, and his death and resurrection. I pray today would be the day that they accept that and give their lives to you. And then grow in that as they come to know you more and more through reading of your word and trusting you day by day. And that we could help one another along the way of these difficult journeys of faith. We pray all this in your name. Amen.